Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hello, Darren. It's Friday the 10th of February today, and it's just been the first sitting week of Parliament. And thanks, actually, to the diligent observations of ABC journalist and friend of the podcast, Stephen Jedgetts. I know of several foreign visitors in Canberra this week, including the Prime Minister of Timor-Leste, the Foreign and Defence Ministers of Indonesia, and the Home Affairs Minister of Fiji. So the government is keeping its busy engagement schedule. You you forgot the New Zealand Prime Minister, Darren. Oh, good grief. Yes, I did. Our Kiwi listeners will be very disappointed. <laughs> I am sorry. And it was, of course, Prime Minister Hipkins' first overseas visit too, I believe. So yes, definitely. Um, but having said that, uh, despite all these visits, I, I do feel compelled to start today with some balloon talk, you might say. And then from there, we'll cover the recent travels of our foreign and defence ministers to Europe by discussing Penny Wong's speech in London and their bilateral visit to France. And then we'll finish with a couple of local items. Defence Minister Miles's speech in Parliament yesterday about sovereignty and AUKUS and a notable comment from International Development Minister Pat Conroy. But before we begin, our thoughts are with the people of Turkey and Syria and the horror they're dealing with following the devastating earthquakes this past week. Now, the balloon. As I'm sure everyone listening already knows, a few weeks ago, a very large balloon, some 200 feet high and carrying a payload the size of a small plane, drifted into American airspace over Alaska, traveled across part of Canada, heading south, eventually passing back into the US and notably Montana, flying near a US Air Force base where ICBMs are stored. It was spotted by civilians, some of whom apparently literally started taking pot shots at it, and the US government acknowledged its existence, as did Beijing, who claimed it as theirs and said it was primarily a meteorological device, and notably expressed regret, according to them, that this meteorological and scientific balloon had accidentally drifted into US airspace. The US government disagreed and said it was a surveillance device, and Q 48 hours of non-stop breathless media coverage as this Chinese spy balloon slowly drifted across America. Republicans were calling for it to be shot down, which it actually was by an F-22 fighter jet, but only after it had left the land and was over the Carolina coast so it could land safely, I guess, in the water. And the US government has now gone through the process of salvaging the wreckage for counterintelligence purposes. After Chinese foreign ministry officials initially seemed a bit embarrassed and off balanced by this discovery, the shooting down of the balloon gave them the chance to criticise what they said was an overreaction by Washington. The US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, had to postpone a planned visit to Beijing, which would have been the first for a Secretary of State since 2018. And meanwhile, another balloon was identified flying over Latin America, which Beijing also said was theirs. Moreover, apparently several others had passed into US airspace since 2017, though not staying as long. Then a few days ago, the Washington Post reported that the US State Department was briefing diplomats in DC on an alleged balloon surveillance program that has been in operation by the PLA since at least 2018, 
targeting multiple countries, including Japan. So, Alan, um, as the journalist Derek Thompson quipped on his podcast, Plain English, nobody died here except the balloon. So is this much of a big deal? Well, look, the advantage of not reading Elon Musk's Twitter is that I missed a lot of the sort of hyperventilation about this and caught up with it as there was actually some useful validated information available. What seems indisputable is that a Chinese balloon or a dirigible, I don't think we yet know exactly whether it was drifting or could be navigated, was identified in US airspace. This is contrary to international law. We'll probably get early confirmation from the Americans that it was nothing like the civilian weather balloon that the Chinese officials claimed. As you said, was reported by the Washington Post, Aaron, this seems to be a Chinese program, size not yet known, of such balloon surveillance flights. Lots of people have ideas about things you could possibly do with a balloon that would be more difficult with a satellite, which would, of course, be legal under international law, but I'm not in any position to judge those things. We know the United States has operated intelligence collection drones in the international airspace of other countries, and we know that not least because the Iranians brought one down in 2011. So, you know, there may be particular uses that they have. Mm. I guess the question then is, even if it is an established program, would the Chinese have deliberately piloted or allowed it to traverse the continental United States? The previous incursions that have been reported really skirted the edges, like down in Florida and so forth, of US airspace and were there for much shorter periods of time. Look, it's very hard to believe that this was a deliberate act on the part of the Chinese authorities or by an element of the military designed to derail Tony Blinken's imminent visit to Beijing. No breakthroughs were expected from his meetings, but both sides obviously saw value in the trip. Although the temperature of the Republican condemnation of the Biden administration's response was pretty searing, the official language used in both Washington and Beijing in response, I thought I thought was rather calm and calculated. Blinken postponed rather than cancelled his trip. And I don't really see any particular long-term consequences arising from the incident, except presumably for the Chinese balloon surveillance program. But taken as a whole, it did add up to the sort of sense that Cold War II is now firmly underway and that we in Australia will have to adjust to it. Well, speaking of us here in Australia, I actually didn't see a government response. Did, Did you catch one? Well, I read a transcript of the the foreign minister was asked for her response to the incident on ABC television, and I thought her language was, was interesting. She said that Australia shared American concerns about the infringement of its airspace, and she noted that Washington had acted in a careful, measured, safe way to bring the balloon down, but she also quickly welcomed Secretary Blinken's openness to continuing dialogue. She repeated the importance of getting guardrails around competition and keeping lines of communication and engagement open. She was asked by the journalist whether Trade Minister Don Farrell should uh, pull out of his planned virtual meeting with the Chinese Commerce Minister in solidarity, and she ruled that out and emphasised 
that Australia wanted to stabilise relations with China, and she repeated the government's mantra, which seems to be serving it well, that we'll cooperate where we can, disagree where we must, and engage in our national interest. Was your reaction any different, Darren? Basically the same, Alan, although I have a mix of optimism and pessimism when I think about it. You know, the overarching question here is, of course, the trajectory of US-China relations and minimising the risk of open conflict. So the optimist in me says this maybe was a good test run. The US has been arguing that guardrails are needed to stabilise their relationship. Beijing has apparently been rejecting that. And Washington's been arguing that guardrails are needed to handle unforeseen shocks and reduce the chance of miscalculation. And this is that kind of circumstance. So if we assume that Beijing and specifically President Xi did not intend for this incident to happen and that she indeed does want to lower the temperature in their relationship, given the array of domestic problems his country is facing, this episode highlights that it is indeed in China's interest to have open communications. And as you said, Alan, for the most part, the messaging has been very calm. Communication seems to have been quite open with albeit one exception following the actual shooting down when a request to have the defence ministers get on a call was denied. That was from the Chinese side, was it? Yes, and I assume they were upset that the balloon had been shot down and were trying to make that point. But regardless, the stakes here are relatively low. Nobody died except for the balloon. So if this helps even to a small extent socialise both sides into how to act and handle crises, that would be a positive. But then, on the other side, the pessimist in me is reminded how unplanned shocks can derail diplomatic momentum. I think both sides do want to lower the temperature, but the optics of this were so bad that Blinken could not proceed with his trip. And you mentioned Cold War II, Alan. And here we have, I think, symbolic impact, like of a physical manifestation of China's growing power and capabilities, sort of visiting the American homeland. You know, balloons are hardly either capability or threat, are they? I mean, the technology is uh, basically 18th century. I've listened to some podcasts where someone has speculated, and I do believe at least they can avoid radar. So maybe there's something you could do with that. But look, the symbolism here, though, for me, is still undeniable. And that for the foreseeable future, the American public may well be viewing China through the lens of this balloon in this 48-hour period where, you know, the Chinese were coming for us, so to speak. The balloons are coming. The yeah, balloons exactly. are coming. <laughs> um, and look, that might be useful in terms of generating political support to rise to the challenge of competing with China, hopefully in a productive way. But it's harmful, of course, if it reduces the space for political cooperation in areas where it's essential. And look, I don't have a good solution to this. Both sides, as we well know, face severe domestic political constraints that are exacerbated when these shocks occur. And then my third point, I think this highlights very interesting questions about the Chinese system. It seems unlikely to me that this was authorised at the highest level. Maybe it was just an ongoing PLA program doing its thing without any regard to political dynamics of the moment. The result? seems to be an embarrassing mistake that I think has harmed China's interests, not just in the delayed Blinken trip, but in really shining a bit of a spotlight globally on China's surveillance activities. And as Washington knows all too well, these reputational hits do add up. And I think the denials make Beijing look even worse. If I'm Washington, I'm going to be trying to get out as much intelligence as quickly as possible to show that this was a surveillance device. 
And we've got these embassy briefings uh, that have been reported that are, are allowing or giving the opportunity to the Americans to sort of demonstrate to their partners and friends, at least, the extent of, of Chinese surveillance. So if I'm the Chinese, why not just fess up and move on? Everyone spies. The Americans probably spy the most. So the fact that they have been persisting with these denials to me is a bit more of a reminder that Beijing continues to lack the confidence and the necessary thick skin that I think a major power needs to be effective you know, on the global stage. Anyway, let's, let's move now to the recent travels by our foreign and defence ministers. They, of course, travelled to France and the UK with Petty Wong also visiting Brussels. I want to start with Wong's speech at King's College London, as it was, I think, the most interesting aspect of the visit. There was a lot of familiar content that we've covered before on the podcast, especially in the second half of the speech, but it's the first section that captured everyone's attention. The foreign minister starts off by observing that the Indo-Pacific started out largely as a collection of European and British colonies, and then describes how many of Australia's neighbours broke free of European colonial control. She then talks about how Australia's thinking on our place in Asia has evolved, at this point, I really feel compelled to read out a lengthy passage. It's very, very interesting. Quote, The modern face of Australia and the modern face of Britain is readily apparent, both among our citizens at large and among our political leaders. Take my own example. In 1836, just two years after Westminster passed the South Australian Colonisation Act, my mother's great-great-grandparents were some of the first British to settle in South Australia. That ancestral connection with Britain has been standard among men and women who have served in my role. But the other side of my family had a very different experience of British colonisation. My father is descended from Hakka and Cantonese Chinese. Many from these clans laboured for the British North Borneo Company in tin mines and plantations for tobacco and timber. Many worked as domestic servants for British colonists, as did my own grandmother. Such stories can sometimes feel uncomfortable for those whose stories they are and for those who hear them. But understanding the past enables us to better share the present and the future. It gives us the opportunity to find more common ground than if we stayed sheltered in narrower versions of our country's histories. It helps open the world to us. It helps open the Indo-Pacific to us, end quote. Now, this speech first came to my attention when my mother mentioned it to me, which given um, it, she mentioned it before she listened to the podcast, she's our number one listener, Alan, so hi, mum. It's one small piece of evidence that the speech broke through to the wider public consciousness here in Australia, which is unusual for a foreign minister's speech let alone one delivered on the opposite side of the world. Reading Australian media reporting on the speech made it seem like this was because the British media, in the words of the Finn Review, walloped her for it. Now, I don't live in the UK, so I can't be certain, but I googled around and couldn't find more than just a couple of articles from the UK press talking about the speech. Yes, the UK Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly, was, when asked by a journalist, sort of forced into a defensive response by highlighting the Asian heritage of the Prime Minister and Home Secretary and his own African heritage. But he was asked that question by an Australian journalist. So I'm wondering really how much pushback there was over in the UK 
whether it's more that the Australian media has chosen to give a lot of attention to it. What did you make of all this, Alan? Darren, I'm a veteran of the Paul Keating Lizard of Oz tour of the United Kingdom in 1993 when manic tabloid journos, outraged by his Republican sentiments and his placing his hand on the Queen's back while guiding her around the opening of Parliament House a year earlier, chased us through the streets of London like in the movies. So I yield to no one in my respect for the capacity of the British tabloids to make Mount Everest out of a molehill. But even so, I was startled, startled to read that Penny Wong, who is usually so much more polite and controlled than Paul Keating, had, had savagely attacked British colonialism in the heart of London. As usual, I thought it would be useful to actually read the speech, which I did. And as you said and quoted, Darren, it was a thoughtful and sometimes personal reflection on the changing relationships between Britain and Australia and our common engagement in the Indo-Pacific. Now, let me repeat this fiery rhetoric. Quote, understanding the past enables us to better share the present and the future. It gives us the opportunity to find more common ground than if we stayed sheltered in narrower versions of our country's histories. End quote. What any listener who hasn't read the speech needs to know is that that is all there was on the subject to report. Now, can you imagine a more outrageous attack on the former colonial power? Well, of course you can. The reaction was just nonsense on stilts. We've already talked several times on the podcast about the way the Albanese government and Penny Wong in particular links foreign policy with our contemporary national identity and sees that as one of the strengths of our foreign policy. And this, I think, was simply another repetition of that. Yeah, I, I agree, Alan. And it's a shame we have to talk about this because I think it's interesting also to consider what the speech was trying to achieve. Is it true that the UK has not sufficiently reckoned with its colonial past? I don't think so, but I can't assess that. But what we do know is that Australia has bound ourselves, not just to the United States, but also the UK, with the AUKUS agreement that Beijing is using this Anglo grouping as a point of criticism, and that it would not surprise me at all if some of or many of the leaders across the Indo-Pacific rolled their eyes at the homogeneity of this prominent new security arrangement when it was first announced. So whether we like it or not, we're going to be put in the same basket as the UK a lot of the time when the region is making assessments about us. We can mitigate that somewhat with our individual messaging, and we've discussed how the government is doing this extensively. But it's also worth trying to persuade our British friends that our approach is the right one for them too. But where I imagine things are harder for the Brits is that they really did once rule the world. So while I wouldn't accuse them of a colonial mindset, successful engagement with the region requires more than just modern thinking. I think it needs to go further into the realm of humility. Yes, we must be confident in our identities, our values and our interests. But even with those givens, a much stronger humility, I think, is the foundation of effective engagement, which starts with an explicit, empathetic and deeply humble reckoning with the past. Two last points. 
One, it did jump out at me that the minister seemed to foreshadow some of the reaction when she described her narrative of her father's side of the family as uncomfortable for those whose families lived them and those who hear them. We are used to Wong speaking hard truths. Recall how much I gushed, and I did gush, at her lecture to the Americans back in December. Her directness then didn't come with sympathy. Now, then, of course, the topic was geopolitics and geoeconomics, not personal questions of history and identity, but still, it's notable that she added that proviso here. And finally, to come back to my mum, the past week separately has been a notable one here in Australia on the topic of the Indigenous voice to Parliament, which for foreign listeners will involve a referendum to change Australia's constitution later this year. This week, a prominent Indigenous Green Senator left her party because she disagrees with its platform on supporting the proposal. So the debate may well become an increasingly contentious and febrile one as the year progresses. And so maybe we shouldn't be surprised that reflections on history and identity and uncomfortable facts from the past, even when expressed as part of our engagement to the rest of the world, might reverberate in unexpectedly vivid and perhaps salient ways here at home and do so even more as the year progresses and we get closer and closer to the referendum. Any reaction to that, Alan? No, I just say I think that's quite right, Darren. All right. Well, let's finish our analysis of the European trip with the French component, with uh, Minister Miles and Minister Wong visiting Paris for the second Franco-Australian Foreign and Defence Ministerial Consultations, a two plus two. Alan, normally a bilateral with the French wouldn't make much news, but things have obviously been different the past few years, as all our listeners will know. Can you talk us through why you think this meeting mattered? I'm sure I've made this point before, Darren, but one of the great advantages of democracy is that it enables us to escape at low cost from the policy cul-de-sacs that all governments eventually uh, are going to get themselves into. That's certainly been the case with France. After the submarine decision and President Macron's I don't think I know response when asked if he thought Scott Morrison had lied to him, there's no way we could have moved on with the relationship with France under a coalition government before you know time and changes of key figures had uh, taken place. And that mattered because of all the countries in Europe, Britain included, France still has the biggest stake and, uh, and role in our part of the world, particularly in the Pacific. Yet here we are just 14 months later with the two countries' foreign and defence ministers, or Richard and Penny and Sebastian and Catherine, as they were all calling each other by the end of the uh, meeting, held uh, productive uh, 2 plus 2 discussions. The decisions they announced included uh, that we'd join in a multi-million dollar project to produce 155 millimeter ammunition for Ukraine. A skeptical French journalist asked, not a bad question really at the press conference, why did this have to be done jointly? Wasn't the powder for the ammunition available in France and wouldn't doing it jointly in fact take longer to get to the Ukrainians? 
Miles replied, and I don't, I absolutely no idea what the the um, background is, but Miles replied a bit vaguely that there were some unique capabilities in Australia and and some synergies that could be achieved together. But he also acknowledged, and this was the important part, I think, that this was a statement of support for Ukraine from Australia and France. Other announcements included commitments to cooperate in the Pacific and on climate, with France signing on to Australia's bid to host COP31 in 2026, a negotiation rather of a reciprocal access agreement between our armed forces, presumably like the one we've just concluded with uh, Japan, signature of a declaration of intent on military space cooperation and cooperation on critical mineral supply chains. At the end of all this, Richard Miles proclaimed a new era in French-Australian relations. Well, we'll see. There have been several of those in the past. But there's no doubt that France is a valuable partner for Australia and that the breach in relations would have lost us opportunities. So a good day's work. Yes. Thanks for that, Alan. This is welcome, I guess, not that surprising. At the end of the day, the two governments agree on the biggest things and it's threats to those big things that are the most urgent and pressing, which is allowing them to move past some of the regrettable behaviour in the past. So let's move back to Australia. And yesterday, the Defence Minister, Richard Miles, gave what I'm sure will be the first of many public statements by the government on AUKUS and AUKUS-related issues in the coming weeks and months. The Sydney Morning Herald framed the speech as a direct rejection of recent criticisms from former Prime Ministers Paul Keating and Malcolm Turnbull that the plan to acquire nuclear submarines will undermine Australia's sovereignty by making us too dependent on the United States. Here's the key quote from the Defence Minister's response. Some argue that Australia's reliance on our partners for the acquisition of naval nuclear propulsion technology gives rise to a dependence that undermines Australia's sovereignty. Yet, the reality is that almost all of Australia's high-end capability is developed in cooperation with our partners. Submarines are no exception, and that dramatically enhanced capability dramatically enhances our sovereignty. Were you persuaded, Alan? Gee, we were prescient in our 2021 Declaration of Sovereignty as the word of the year, weren't we? You were prescient, Alan. (laughs) Yes, this one's your victory to claim. Yeah. I assume the statement was intended to lay the foundation for the government's announcements on force posture, particularly on nuclear submarines. So it's a preemptive effort to address the concerns that you mentioned, Darren, about whether Australian sovereignty will be constrained by a decision to acquire nuclear submarines under AUKUS. Miles begins by defining sovereignty as the capacity of a people through their government to determine their own circumstances and to act of their own accord, free from any coercive influence. Now, that seems okay as a definition, and he then argues that capability provided it is at the complete discretion of a country, contributes to its ability to determine its circumstances and therefore to its sovereignty. Now, again, um, fair enough. He describes Australia's strategic environment in familiar terms, including the need to build partnerships to uh, deter and respond to all who might seek to change the rules-based order, which we've heard plenty of times before. He says it's more important than ever 
that Australia works closely with like-minded countries, key partners, and the United States, although he acknowledges that we should, and I'm quoting him here, never forget that Australia's front line is diplomacy. Our primary effort, he says, is to use our diplomacy to reduce tensions and create pathways for peace. Now, dwell on that for a moment. I think it's important because I can't remember an Australian defence minister talking about diplomacy as the front line before. I just hope the necessary support for the frontline troops turns up in the in the budget. Now, well said, Alan. <laughs> of course, sovereignty is not the only issue at play with nuclear submarines. The cost and impact on the defence budget as a whole and the number that you've got that are operationally available compared with cheaper conventional subs or other defensive capabilities are also going to play into the debate. As you mentioned, the minister pointed out that almost all our high-end capability is developed in cooperation with our partners and that submarines are no exception. But in fact, nuclear technology is an exception and we still don't know whether the, quote, full knowledge and concurrence, which he talks about applying to our own cooperation with the United States when it's making use of Australian assets, will also apply in the other direction, that is in the way we utilise this uh, highly sensitive American technology, but I guess we now wait and see. Mm, mm, Fair enough, Alan. All good points. I've actually done a bit of a 180 on the speech in the last 24 hours since it was given, because when I first read it, I was a bit underwhelmed because I just couldn't shake the feeling he was trying to do too much. I have no idea and no insight into how speeches are written in his office. But this had the feeling of a hundred different voices each trying to get their sentence to tick a box. And in my initial thinking, if the primary purpose was to rebut the argument that nuclear submarines will undermine Australia's sovereignty, I worried that message got a bit lost with the volume of content. It's a very long speech, over 3,000 words in length. I personally would have loved a story. For example, a description of an existing piece of equipment or technology that the ADF has used many times in defence of Australia's interests before, maybe on humanitarian missions, and then describe the complex supply chain that goes into the manufacture of that piece of equipment to show both that it's not just realistic for Australia to do this on our own, but also that the division of labour among partner countries is a really good thing for multiple reasons. You then would say that the strategic environment has changed and we need the nuclear submarine capability and that they have a complex supply chain too, and you're done. However, I was chatting with a distinguished member of the Australian foreign policy community this morning, and they pointed out to me that the media soundbites from the speech, like the quote I read out a moment ago, were quite effective. And given that Turnbull's recent criticism was literally a tweet itself, I can see the logic now of constructing a speech that you know is going to be sliced and diced by the media with your argument being contained in key fragments. So in that sense, it may well have been very effective. Anything more from you on this, Alan? No, I I thought it was a pretty good set of principles to set down before we get caught up in the particular decisions that the government's about to make uh, on these issues. Okay, well, very quickly to finish up, there was a report in the ABC yesterday which noted that Australia's International Development Minister, Pat Conroy, 
had said recently that he wants development specialists to, quote, take over DFAT, saying on the Goodwill Hunters podcast, quote, I want not just new graduates in DFAT having rotations through development, I want it to be a critical requirement for promotion into the senior executive service and at a deputy secretary level, end quote. And I recall he said something similar in a speech late last year as well. Alan, I just have to get a quick reaction from you on this. Oh, Darren, I don't think I want to get involved in this. All I would say is that DFAT needs expertise in all the central areas of its operations, from experts in various regions to trade specialists, multilateralists, and of course, development policy people. I have some sympathy with the view that you hear around the aid community that some of the development specialisation which was present in AusAid has been lost in the merger. But short of that, there is never going to be enough time in anyone's career for them to be deeply knowledgeable about all the department's responsibilities, as well as understanding government outside DFAT through uh, secondments and so on. So all you can aim for, I think, is a broad spread of experiences and expertise across the senior levels of the department rather than in each individual officer. I can't disagree with any of that, Alan. Um, I, I haven't had time to listen to the episode yet, but I am keen to hear about the minister's underlying model here, you might say. One argument you could make is that development specialists are better at understanding the underlying needs and therefore the underlying motivations of recipient countries. In our penultimate episode last year, Alan, I argued that a practical implication of the poly crisis was that our neighbours are facing multiple complex systemic shocks at the same time, and that we need to put ourselves in their shoes to understand how constrained they really are if we are going to engage with them effectively. So this is really a strategic argument to be effective in our development policy we need to understand the politics of recipient countries and to understand the politics requires deep knowledge of the development policy challenges they face in an era of polycrisis. So whether it's political and trade officials acquiring better knowledge of development challenges or it's development officials engaging more with the geopolitical and geoeconomic dynamics of their programs, my point, as I said back in December, is to encourage greater interdisciplinarity and the breaking of intellectual silos. So I'm sure we'll be talking about this again. I'm sure we will. <laughs> Reading, listening and watching, Alan, what do you have for us this week? Well, directly related to our discussions here, uh, Catherine Murphy has a revealing interview with Anthony Albanese on her Australian Politics podcast. Uh, in it, he discusses, among other issues, the state of the world and his view of Australian security. And look, I recommend it because it's such a relaxed chat between two people who clearly know each other well. And therefore, I got a much more revealing sense of the PM's personal approach to foreign and defence policy than you might get in a formal speech prepared by staff and officials. And there's a transcript on the PM's website as well. But I have another stranger recommendation. The Nobel Prize for Literature last year was won by the French writer Annie Ernaux, whose work I didn't know at all. But at the urging of Catherine, my wife, whose taste in reading on the whole couldn't be more different from mine, I've just finished The Years, which is a short 
but extraordinary combination of a deeply personal memoir of Anno's life from the Second World War to 2008, fused or sort of entangled like quantum particles with the social and political history of France and the world over that period. You keep, or at least I kept, pausing as I was reading it to ask, uh, how the hell is she doing this? It's really just remarkable technique. Uh, bringing it back to the podcast, though, and the new era Richard Miles sees in Franco-Australian relations, uh, anyone with an interest in understanding France or Europe over the past 70 years will find uh, insights in, in every page, as well as being a masterpiece. Thanks, Alan. Uh, also, two recommendations from me. First, I really enjoyed the essay by treasurer Jim Chalmers in the latest edition of The Monthly. Just last episode, actually, I mentioned the work of Carl Polanyi, who argued a long time ago that markets are social institutions and efforts to disembed them from society inevitably cause political backlash. And this is the crisis of neoliberalism that's been much discussed and what Polanyi calls a double movement. From Chalmers' essay, it appears that he agrees and he's making a good faith effort to advance the conversation on how to re-embed, you might say, how to re-embed markets into society in ways that address the failures of the last 40 years without destroying the value that well-functioning markets create. It's not an easy thing to do, and the strong reaction to the essay shows the political economy challenge of reform but it's really great to see a treasurer in his office thinking deeply about it. I think it's worth him spending the time and us spending the time doing so. The second is an essay by the economics writer Noah Smith on his Substack, and the title of the essay is Vertical Communities. Smith cites a recent paper saying that most Americans can no longer name individuals who are influential in their local communities. Smith distinguishes between horizontal communities which are those formed by geography. So people who live near you, but may not have necessarily much in common with you. And vertical communities, which are groups of people united by identities, interests, and values, rather than physical proximity. Smith points out that horizontal communities have been the norm for most of history, for obvious reasons, but that the internet has enabled the rise of the vertical community allowing us to find people who share our identities and interests wherever they may be. Smith then recognises the challenge with horizontal communities, or you could say local communities, is that they, quote, can often be stifling and repressive because they impose community norms on people with a diverse array of occupations, temperaments and backgrounds, end quote. But we still need them because the most essential public goods provided by government I think especially of schools, but also things like transport, utilities, and public safety are provided horizontally. They have to be. So if you care about your kid's school, you still have to show up to the parent meetings and volunteer at the sausage sizzle and therefore interact with other parents who might be very different to you. Smith's worry is that the growing prominence of the online space, vertical communities, will further put pressure on and fragment horizontal communities but be unable to replace their physicality, which is a challenge, I think, for governing institutions everywhere. So it's worth a very close read. That's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank Walter Konagi for research and audio editing today, and of course, Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We'll talk to you soon.